0: Gentlemen, you may remove your jackets if you need to. Well,
1: Paul will introduce our speakers, but this is just a thank you to all of you for coming for this uh, quite a springtime event. And uh, the gestation of the evening is all in the hands of uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Paul Rowan, who will
0: lead us in our proceedings this evening. Thank 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 you.
2: So I'd like to take this opportunity myself to welcome you all. Can I just, at the risk of offending everybody else in the room, welcome my Anglican friends that heard me speak last week. I'm glad you've turned up. Uh, you, clearly it's not me tonight, it's these gentlemen. But thank you for coming along, my Anglican friends from, from Kingston. Uh, our our a Centre springtime event, GK Chesterton and CS Lewis, Genius and Rivalry, Legacy and Friendship. The Second Vatican Council, uh, in Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 19, viewed atheism, unbelief, not just as an error in the interpretation of existence or a worldview espoused by hostile political regimes, remember it was a document written in the 1960s, but as a pastoral problem and a personal problem in the inner life of, of a human being. For, for the Second Vatican Council, unbelief is a, is a question of unrecognised relationship with the creator of each of us. And I've often thought if there's a failure in communication between two parties, the, the fault may lie on in one or the other party, or both to some extent. So I think it is legitimate to ponder at times whether or not the church offers the treasures of her tradition with as much creativity and imagination and pastoral wisdom as it might at times, Avery Dulles, famous cardinal theologian, advises apologists in every age to learn from the giants of the past, as I'm sure you're aware, otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here tonight. G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis are among those apologetic giants in the English language, but also now in many, many languages because they've been translated. They're, they were humble, they were humorous, they were grateful, they were intelligent, prophetic, robust. And beloved of many, especially in the case of Chesterton, many of his opponents. As the title of this evening suggests, both these men were geniuses in their own right. And while there are one or two points of divergence between them, which are not unimportant, and they may come up tonight, I don't know. um, More important than the ways in which they differed are the things they held in common, which they bequeathed to us as an apologetic legacy. They're friends on the same side, because... They've got the same commanding officer, the good Lord, and they tussle with the same adversaries. We've got two first-class intellects and speakers and writers, in fact, to lead us in our discussions tonight. First, uh, over here, Dale Alquist, laughing at me. You can get away with it because you're a friend of mine. According to the website of the American Chesterton Society, and he's president of that That. Group. is one of the most respected Chestertonian scholars in the world. I think there's a strong argument that he's the foremost of such scholars, if he doesn't mind me saying that. As I say, he's president of that society, publisher of its flagship publication, Gilbert. He's also creator and host of the popular EWTN series, The Apostle of Common Sense, and the author of three books, one which shares the same name, one called Common Sense 101, Lessons from G.K. Chesterton, and one called The Complete Thinker, the marvellous mind of G.K. Chesterton. He's been invited to share his wisdom at such pre- prestigious institutions as Yale, Columbia, Cornell, Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, I suppose. Notre Dame, OK. Oxford, the Vatican Forum in Rome, and the House of Lords in our own London. He's also a senior fellow at the Chesterton Library in Oxford. And the co-founder, I'll just finish this because we are now the School of Education, Theology and Leadership. Finish your little bio. He's the co-founder of Chesterton Academy, a new high school in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which has been rated one of the top fifty Catholic schools in that nation by the Cardinal Newman Society. And he's pioneering work in classical integrated education has helped develop a curriculum that's capturing the minds of parents across the country. Peter, this side. ...closer to me, is a Christian apologist, a philosopher, an author and a composer. Assistant Professor in Communication and Worldviews at Gimle Köln, is that right? Gimle Köln. School of Journalism and Communication in Norway. He works with the UK Damaris Trust, known to many religious education teachers in this country... ...where he is philosopher in residence and leads philosophy conferences for A-level students and helps him to, and, and undertakes writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements around the country. He's authored several books, including A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism and C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheist, some among others. There are others down here too. The format tonight then is that our two speakers will lead the discussion and perhaps that will take up to half an hour, maybe 40 minutes if they have a little bit of banter with each other at the end. Then we'll allow five minutes for people to chat to their neighbours, replenish their glasses. Hopefully there'll be plenty said by our speakers to stimulate reflection and questions. But we've also provided a, a list of quotes, you've probably found it already on the seat, from both Chesterton and Lewis, which you may want to ask questions about to, to these experts. Um, after our discussion question and answer session, which will probably go on for about half an hour hopefully, I'm going to let the evening conclude in the hands of uh, the Director of the Aquinas Institute, Dr. Anthony Taylor. So, that's the format. Gentlemen, Dale, over to you. Well, thank
3: you very much, uh, Reverend Dr. Paul, and thank you everyone for coming. Thank you most of all, Peter, for, for coming. Uh, and I want to start by... Issuing a very, very, very vigorous protest about uh, the premises on which I, I am here, because uh, the uh, when 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 uh, Father Paul first invited me, it was going to be I was going to we were going to have a debate about who was the better Christian apologist, G. K. Chesterton or C. S. Lewis. You know that you know that's a debate right there. Unfortunately, they couldn't get anyone to argue for C.S. Lewis. uh, I think three people came and went and fell. And so then uh, I offered to debate myself on that same question. That didn't go anywhere either. But then they they scraped up Peter here, who was willing to have a discussion about, uh, uh, you know, a a joint presentation about how the two writers agree. And I said, well, nobody wants to hear a, a debate about how much two writers agree, because that's not a debate. People want blood. That's the only reason you're here. You're here because you want to see a fight. So I said, let's let's create a controversy, I suggested to Peter. Let's let's have a controversy. So I suggested um to to choose a very outlandish uh proposition which is did C.S. Lewis ever have an original thought, or did he get them all from G.K. Chesterton? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a reason why I chose such an outlandish position, one, one which I'm, I'm sure to lose, and I'm fully prepared to be defeated, but it has to do with my own introduction to uh, G.K. Chesterton. I was uh, raised Baptist, Evangelical, And a big C.S. Lewis fan. And one summer, back when I was in college, back when the fashions were very bad. uh, We're talking about the worst fashions in all of history. We're talking about the 1970s people. Uh, I was reading Mere Christianity. And someone uh, who I respected very much said, oh, you like C.S. Lewis? I said, oh, I love C.S. Lewis. And he said, well, have you ever read G.K. Chesterton? And I said, I've never heard of G.K. Chesterton. And he said, well, if you read Chesterton, you don't even need to read C.S. Lewis because all of C.S. Lewis is in Chesterton. Well, this was a blasphemous remark, in my opinion, but it was one of those remarks that stuck with me. And so it took me a few years before I finally picked up my first Chesterton book because all of a sudden I start noticing Ch- uh, C.S. Lewis referring to Chesterton. And the, the book he primarily was referring to was The Everlasting Man, which was the first book that I, that I read by Chesterton. And, uh, you know, my point is that even though I fully intend to be uh, defeated by my own proposition, I was first defeated by G.K. Chesterton. Because what he did to me was he made me lose my desire to read C.S. Lewis. He didn't make me forget Lewis. On the contrary, he made me always remember Lewis as in when I was reading Chesterton, I'd go, oh, here's where C.S. Lewis got that. <laughs> so um, that's, what, that's what the genesis of the debate is. And, and I'm going to be debating that proposition. I don't even know what Peter's going to be debating. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, I have to say that you know a lot of people ask the question, and they assume that that C.S. Lewis and Chesterton knew each other. And uh, yesterday I, I met with uh, with Walter Hooper, who was C.S. Lewis's secretary, uh, and and he said C.S. Lewis's one great regret was that he never met G.K. Chesterton. But the fact is, they did meet. They did meet. They met several, several, several times, at least 30 important times, and on each of those occasions, Lewis sat quietly, except when he was laughing out loud, and took in what Chesterton had to say, making meticulous notes. It was a one-way conversation, because Lewis was doing all the listening, and Chesterton was doing all the talking, because it was Lewis reading Chesterton's books. That was their meeting. And uh, he read at least 30 of Chesterton's books because we have those books from Lewis's library with his notes in the margins. And, uh, And even if we didn't have that positive evidence of Lewis reading Chesterton, we'd have the evidence of Lewis's own writings which are full of Chesterton's ideas. Uh, The book, of course, that influenced him the most was The Everlasting Man. Chesterton's great apologetic of Christianity. He makes this wonderful argument that that the reason why the modern world does not understand Christianity is that they're simply too close to it. They are reacting against the the, uh, aspect of the church that most affects them, and that's what they're reacting to but they don't see the whole picture, they don't see the whole church. And so what he does with The Everlasting Man is he tries to get the reader to step back far enough to see the church as a whole, to see Christianity as a whole, to see the strange thing that is the phenomenon of Christianity from an objective distance, and then then try to look at it objectively. Uh, But first he puts it into the context of The fact that that man is a unique creature on the earth, and then Christ then is a unique man. The history changes completely when Christ enters the stage, and nothing is the same afterwards. And the only possible explanation of what happens afterwards is that Jesus was who he said he was. And of course, he he makes the classic argument that uh, Jesus is either a madman or a liar or the devil, or the Son of God. The one thing he is not is a great teacher. And if that argument sounds familiar, that's exactly the argument that that C.S. Lewis uses in in The Everlasting Man. Uh, He wrote a letter to a a gentleman named Mr. Hope in Birmingham, I'm assuming Birmingham, England, not Birmingham, Alabama. I'm going to go out on a limb there. And uh, he says, thanks for your kind letter. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, The talks are coming out in the listener, uh, and they're going to be published, and uh, I'm going to be sending the scripts to people, and I'll send you a copy of the script. Meanwhile, the argument for our Lord's divinity, which I used, is an old one, and a good statement of it will be found in G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, which I think is one of the best popular defenses of our faith ever written. Yours sincerely, C.S. Lewis. Excuse my economy of paper because he wrote that letter on the back of the letter that the gentleman wrote to him. It was during 1942, and paper was scarce. You may never have heard of that letter because it's never been published. It's hanging on a wall in a house in Detroit. A friend of mine owns the letter. <laughs> the talks he re- he's referring to are his talks that were on BBC radio, which became the basis of mere Christianity. Uh, Lewis you know, often praises the everlasting man as being... You know, one of the great influences in his life, he says that, uh, you know, it really was that turning point that, that turned him away from atheism towards Christianity. He said afterwards that a, a young man who's serious about his atheism cannot be too careful about what he reads. Uh, and, and Ch- he says that, that when he read Chesterton, he, he, Chesterton made an immediate conquest of him, and he called him the most sensible man alive. And he said he did not know what he was in for. In reading Chesterton. Uh, he makes great use, C.S. Lewis does, of the tool that Chesterton himself is noted for, which is paradox, the, um, the contradictory nature of truth. Um, you see it in um, uh, the the paradox that, that Lewis uses to describe the faith, that it's like learning to dive. Uh, into the water from a great height you, you do the opposite of what you want to do you give yourself up to the faith it's a contrary action to, to, to what you, you would normally expect to do and, and Chesterton uses the same uh, paradox to, to explain what courage is because courage means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die that you can only save your life by risking it uh, And uh, Lewis has another paradox. He says, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. A very Chestertonian paradox. In fact, Chesterton says, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Lewis says, health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining that there's something wrong with you. Well, Chesterton says the worship of health is unhealthy. Just like he says the worship of nature always leads to something unnatural. Lewis quotes a Chesterton paradox where he says that we are taller when we bow and lowlier when we instruct. Lowlier when we instruct. Let that be a lesson to you academics over there. In, In Surprised by Joy... Lewis writes, joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is often a substitute for joy. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. Where did you get that idea? He got it from G.K. Chesterton, who writes, modern men have utterly lost the joy of life. They have to put up with the miserable substitutes of the joys of life. And even these seem less and less they are able to enjoy. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, that's surprised by joy is the, um, is the theme of his book of conversion. And and Chesterton, it, it, it epitomizes an idea that Chesterton writes about in Orthodoxy, where he says, the massive of men have been forced to be happy about the little things and sad about the big ones, but it's not native to man to be so. Man is more himself, man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the supernatural. Joy, which is the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes that non-Christians hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ-like life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Great line from C.S. Lewis. Where did he get it? Very good. You got the answer right. Chesterton uh, makes a point, writing about fairy tales about 40 years earlier, writing about Beauty and the Beast, that the main lesson of Beauty and the Beast is that you must love a thing first and make it lovable afterwards. And in Orthodoxy, he says, men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because men loved her. Lewis, of course, writes about the the Shadowlands, the idea that this world is only a hint of something much greater, something much more real that lies in store for us, and that our whole longing for heaven Our longing for God is certainly evidence that there is a heaven and there is a God. And, of course, Chesterton writes that same thing about being homesick at home and that man's normal condition is not his normal condition and our present state is not right. We are fallen, and that's what we mean by the fall, that whatever I am, I am not myself. And as for the the modern psychologists who try to explain away our religious nature as mere projection, Chesterton projects it right back at them when he says that the psychologist who says that man's desire for heaven proves there's no God is like saying that a man's desire for bread proves there's no food. At the conclusion of uh, the Narnia Chronicles, at the end of the last battle, uh, it ends with the characters realizing that their story has just begun and all of their adventures in Narnia have only been a the cover and the title page. And now at last they're beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Beautiful, beautiful passage from C.S. Lewis that of course he got from G.K. Chesterton. In Orthodoxy, Chesterton writes, Life, according to the faith, is like a serial story in a magazine Life ends with the promise to be continued in our next. And it also with the noble vulgarity, life imitates the serial and leaves off at the exciting moment, for death is distinctly an exciting moment. Though they're both associated with their great and sparkling Christian apologetics, it should be noticed that they're both poets. And they both know what the purpose of the written word is for, which Chesterton says the purpose of poetry is to make language go on all fours. And Chesterton says the most beautiful of all the functions of the poet is that he gives men words for which men from the beginning of the world have starved more than for bread. And even though Lewis you know, openly admits that Chesterton influences his thinking and his principal ideas in defending the faith, he said that Chesterton really didn't influence his imagination. And yet, his, his ideas on fantasy fiction really come right back to an important essay that Chesterton wrote on fantasy fiction. It's the very same essay that J. R. Tolkien draws on in explaining the whole nature of fantasy f- fiction. It's an it's a essay that Chesterton wrote called Magic and Fantasy in Fiction. Um, And and Chesterton points out that all logic is balanced by the creative imagination to create whole thinking. The the great uh, novel that Lewis wrote, Till We Have Faces, he draws on these classical themes. uh, And and I think it's Lewis's best novel. But but he he would not have been able to write it without, without Chesterton explaining what the purpose of mythology and classical literature is that he admits Chesterton really helped him understand what the exact role of mythology is in the development of our culture. And that it really wasn't until mythology was christened that it found what it was looking for, that, that mythology suddenly made sense. And, and Chesterton has this wonderful line about the purpose of the great classical literature is because we, we love the, the uh, Odyssey because all life is a journey. We love the Iliad, he says, because all life is a battle. And we love the book of Job because all life is a riddle. Uh, the, the list goes on. He, Chesterton's, uh, 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 Lewis wrote this great book on miracles. Um, and here I'll read this passage The historic case against miracles is rather simple. It consists of calling miracles impossible and then saying that no one but a fool believes impossibilities and then declaring that there's no wise evidence on behalf of the miraculous. The whole trick is done by means of leaning alternately on the philosophical and on the historical objection. If we say that miracles are theoretically possible, they say yes, but there's no evidence for them. When we say that all the records of the human race say, here is your evidence, they say, yeah, but those people were superstitious, they believed in impossible things wonderful exposition of the circular arguing against miracles. Uh, does anybody know where that passage came from? Which one? Was it Chesterton or was it Lewis? Who wants to vote? How many say it was Lewis that wrote that? You're all wrong! No, it was Chesterton. But it was a, it's the whole basis of of Lewis's book on, on miracles, um, when, uh, when Lewis was um, give, spoke gave his inaugural address at Cambridge, he makes a distinction between rulers and leaders. The whole distinction is picked up from his book on uh, Chesterton's book on Chaucer. The abolition of man ends with a scathing critique of modern science that's really lifted right out of Chesterton. In his uh, one of his letters, he writes to Sheldon Van Alken in uh, *A Severe Mercy*. He says that there's really two options: there's there's Eastern religion and Western religion. Those are really ultimately the two options. That is an argument that comes straight out of Chesterton. Uh, and of course, the people who try to put the two together and say that there are there's you can you can combine Eastern and Western religion, of course, Chesterton says there are people who say. That Buddhism and Christianity are exactly alike, especially Buddhism. <laughs> All right. Couple more and then I will I will yield the floor to my esteemed opponent and my worthy adversary. Um, C. S. Lewis, of course, wrote the screw tape letters. Chesterton wrote a book called *Half Hours in Hades*, an elementary handbook of demonology, a humorous book explaining how demons tempt various men. And he, but of course, he also argued that evil spirits are quite real and and do lead men to evil. And then, of course, there's that uh, that whole uh, treatment of um, of pain in uh, the problem of pain, and that whole dealing with the subject of suffering, and, uh, and Chester's, I mean, Lewis writes a very profound book in The Problem of Pain, but it is the theme of, of Chesterton's favorite book of the Bible, which is the book of Job, and he writes this wonderful essay on the book of Job, and in that he tells the strange story of a good man who suffers not because he was bad and deserved it, but because he was good and did not deserve it. And while the inevitable result of love is incarnation, Chesterton says the inevitable result of incarnation is crucifixion. All right, I give you Peter.
1: (laughs) Well, G.K. Chesterton held that uh, talking about serious questions is a pleasure. Uh, So let me begin by thanking everyone, including my esteemed opponent, uh, who has made this pleasurable, serious discussion possible. Uh, I love the writings of C.S. Lewis, and like Lewis, I love the writings of G.K. Chesterton. With Lewis, I especially love The Everlasting Man. Neo-atheist Lawrence Krauss could have saved himself from writing his book, A Universe from Nothing, if only he'd paid attention to Chesterton's observation, nobody can imagine how nothing could turn into something. Nobody can get an inch nearer to it by explaining how something would turn into something else researching uh, my book that was mentioned earlier C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists it struck me very powerfully that when he was an atheist Lewis had been the kind of atheist who takes philosophy seriously as an atheist Lewis rejected the positivism and the scientism that characterised modernity One might even say that the atheism of Lucretius saved Lewis from the non-theism of A.J. Eyre. Lewis believed that language puts us in touch with reality. And he argued against the positivists that there's more than one way of being in touch with reality. Lewis's paper on the language of religion I think is a significant, uh, much overlooked rejoinder to positivism. But Lewis didn't lurch from the strictures of modernism into the, um, the looseness of postmodernism. His love of philosophy produced neither a narrow rationalism nor a romantic anti-rationalism. But a A pre-modern wisdom, if you like, that recognised the value of empirical data without rejecting the transcendent facts of truth and goodness and beauty. Lewis holds scientism below the waterline by observing that acts of reason upon which science depends don't depend upon science but upon rational intuition. It says you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable which just has to be seen. Likewise, in his essay, A Plea for Popular Philosophy, Chesterton points out that all argument begins with assumption, that is, with something you do not doubt. Let us clearly realise this fact, that we do believe in a number of things which are part of our existence, but which cannot be demonstrated every sane man believes that the world around him and the people in it are real and not his own delusion or dream one might almost say that by embracing medieval ideas about philosophy Chesterton and Lewis anticipated the whole reformed epistemology revolution of the 1960s this goes to show that great Sense that Chesterton showed in noting that what a man can believe depends upon his philosophy and not upon the clock or the century. In the same vein, Lewis warned against the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited There is no epistemological good news needed more by people today than the news that there is more to knowledge than science. The failure of scientism means it makes sense to say that murder is objectively evil and that rainbows are objectively beautiful. Lewis's influential lectures on the abolition of man remain a very powerful statement of such axiological value realism Lewis was as much a poet as a philosopher not as a a centaur is half man and half horse but as Jesus is fully man yet fully divine Lewis was a philosophical poet and a poetical philosopher when Lewis was memorialised in Westminster Abbey at the end of last year He was celebrated as much for being a Christian apologist who gave us mere Christianity and miracles as he was for being the Christian novelist who gave us the Screwtape Letters and the Chronicles of Narnia. One can't separate Lewis's philosophy from his fiction. On the one hand, his philosophy uses story to elicit rational insight. Consider his essay Meditation in a Toolshed, with its distinction between looking at and looking along a beam of light. On the other hand, Lewis's fiction fleshes out a philosophical skeleton, allowing us to imbibe the atmosphere of a philosophy. I particularly enjoy imbibing the abolition of man through his novel That Hideous Strength. And I was thrilled by Michael Ward's recent discovery of how the medieval cosmology Lewis describes in his lectures on the discarded image shape the world of Narnia. Chesterton said, it is only too easy to forget that there is a thrill in theism. And I find reading Lewis is thrilling. Not because he has anything original to say, but because he puts his mastery of language wholly at the service of truth. As Lewis advised, no one who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring tuppence how often it's been told before, you will, nine times out of 10, become original without having ever noticed it. Unlike the neo-atheists of today, Lewis attended carefully to arguments for the falsehood of naturalism and for the truth of theism. And the arguments that Lewis passes on to us are popularisations or developments of arguments others, including Chesterton, had already made and which had convinced Lewis himself. For example, in Mere Christianity, Lewis succinctly popularised the the sort of meta-ethical moral argument for God developed by W.R. Sawley's Gifford lectures on moral values and the idea of God. Likewise, Lewis clearly owes Chesterton an apologetic debt. In general terms... In addition to the use of multiple literary genres, we should note that Lewis's desire to advocate mere Christianity follows Chesterton's emphasis in orthodoxy upon the central Christian theology, sufficiently summarised in the Apostles' Creed. At the expense of the fascinating but quite different question of what is the present seat of authority for the proclamation of that creed, In specific terms, one sees ancestors to many of Lewis's arguments in Chesterton's work. In The Everlasting Man, uh, he precedes Lewis in debunking the mythical Jesus myth, lays the foundation for Lewis's argument from desire, and gives Lewis the mad, bad, or God trilemma. In Orthodoxy... Chesterton touches upon the argument from desire and spends several pages planting seeds that may have contributed to Lewis's anti-naturalism arguments. Chesterton writes, Evolution is a good example of that modern intelligence which, if it destroys anything, destroys itself. Evolution is either an innocent scientific description of how certain things came about, or, if it's anything more than that, is an attack upon thought itself. His arguments for this conclusion are best described as suggestive. Indeed, Chesterton describes his own style as attempting, in a vague and personal way, in a set of mental pictures, rather than a series of deductions, to state the philosophy in which I have come to believe. Well, when Lewis takes over from Chesterton in the wrestling match with naturalism, he comes into the ring equipped with clear distinctions and lean distinctions, clear definitions, uh, a range of of heavy-hitting deductions that continue to spark debate in the professional literature today. And it was perhaps not only from Chesterton that he got this kind of argument, You can also, I think, see Lewis himself quoting people like Haldane and reading, for example, the lectures of Arthur Balfour, who made much the same argument. I think this is a general pattern. Uh, Chesterton may write the wittier summary, insight on the issue, but then Lewis gives the more developed, thought-through argument. In fact, all of these arguments that I've mentioned live on in contemporary debates. For example, the, the argument from Desire has been developed and defended by philosophers like John Cottingham, John Haldane, Robert Hoyler, Peter Kraft, and Alistair McGrath, among others. The trilemma has been developed and defended by the likes of Stephen T. Davis, Douglas Grouthouse and David A. Horner. However, of all of the arguments that Lewis defended, I think it's the anti-naturalism arguments of Miracles and of essays such as De Futilitate that resonate most insistently today. Alvin Plantinga acknowledges his debt to Lewis for his famous anti-naturalism argument from evolution. Moreover, it's not only in reading contemporary Christian phlo- philosophers such as Plantinga or Victor Repet or R. Scott Smith or Angus L. Minuge that one recalls Lewis's anti-naturalism arguments. Fascinatingly, increasingly... It's also in reading contemporary non-Christian thinkers such as John Gray and Thomas Nagel and Alex Rosenberg and John Searle and Raymond Tallis. Through the many friendships that constituted the Inklings, Lewis teaches us the importance of being nourished by a community of scholarship that's jointly dedicated to following the argument wherever it leads was the the motto of the socratic club that lewis was the president of and through reading what lewis called old books we have the privilege of transcending the chronological snobbery of our own age and communing in just such a fellowship with c.s lewis and g.k chesterton
3: In 1946, ten years after Chesterton died, C.S. Lewis wrote a short article defending Chesterton against the two charges for which he was being attacked then, for which he uh, is still sometimes attacked and dismissed by most academicians. One, that he was popular, and two, that he was dated. Of course, G, uh, C.S. Lewis is attacked for the same, same two reasons. Popular, dated. Popularity is always suspect among academicians. They assume the truth has to be something esoteric. It's the uh, heresy of Gnosticism. that The truth is something theirs alone to understand, that, that they must guard it so that it doesn't become too widely available or too widely appreciated, or or too widely afforded. (laughs) That was a really funny joke, you people. I don't know. Do you understand the English language here? I mean, that was a good one. Anyways, and I I didn't even have it written down here, I'm telling you. Um, But to call something too popular is a strange way of criticizing it. Uh, Because you're not really criticizing the author, you're criticizing the people who read it. Dated is another worthless criticism. it's in fact it seems to criticize the first criticism. Uh, it seems to contradict the first criticism because dated means not keeping with the current trend, which itself will be dated in the next year or maybe the next week. To be contemporary means about to be dated. The irony is that Chesterton and Lewis both rejected contemporary trends and appealed to the idea that truth does not go out of style the way dresses do, the way the 1970s did. Chesterton says the truth does not rely on the calendar. To say that a doctrine may be believed in the 12th century but not in the 20th is like saying it can be believed on Monday but not on Tuesday. Lewis himself admitted that he once suffered from what, he, what was called chronological snobbery which was uh, Owen Barfield's term that he accused uh, Lewis of suffering from and Le- Owen Barfield shook him loose of that, uh, of that chain. Of course, Owen oh, Barfield also got his ideas from Chesterton, but we'll have to leave that debate for another day. But what I especially appreciate about C.S. Lewis's writings, especially in the early 50s and, and early 60s, is that he always comes to Chesterton's defense when it's clear that the whole intellectual community was turning against Chesterton and dismissing Chesterton and starting to forget Chesterton. Lewis was still. Holding Strong, he said, he, he, he writes that Chesterton is under a cloud at the moment. In fact, even J.R.R. Tolkien was starting to back off his early enthusiasm for Chesterton, which, of course, is to Tolkien's everlasting shame. In fact, I don't know if Tolkien's reputation will ever be rehabilitated. <laughs> Lewis always stood by Chesterton, and Lewis... Himself, it's interesting, of course, suffered from that same attitude towards his own writing, from the intellectual elite, who even today don't give him the credit that's due him, even for his purely academic writing, like his, his great literary criticism. But what's, what, what Lewis's greatest debt to Chesterton is, is, for what I think Lewis is, is known to known by for any Christian, is his great apologetics. And they both Chesterton and Lewis were Christian apologists in a very unchristian setting. They were believers in an age of unbelief. They both represented certitude in, a, in the midst of skepticism. But what Lewis gets from from Chesterton in fact it, it actually changed his whole approach to to apologetics. His early apologetics really fell flat because It does no good to tell an atheist that he's an atheist. You can't prove that someone is wrong by using your own scheme of things. You can't prove that they're wrong on your grounds. You have to argue on your opponent's terms. And you have to argue on their grounds. And the beginning of an argument has to be to establish a common ground. And that's the thing that Lewis got from Chesterton more than anything else, because that's why Chester was such a brilliant debater and such a great apologist, because he he came to the skeptic and, and the atheist and whatever the opponent was on their terms and established a common ground with them and then took it from there. And in fact, uh, Lewis even writes about this in his uh, essay, Advice to Apologists. Lewis says that Chesterton wrote some of the finest heroic narratives, some of the most disciplined pathos, and some of the cleanest prose that our century has ever seen. And it's evident that he set out himself to imitate all those things. Heroic narrative, disciplined pathos, clean prose. To express the same thing that Chesterton expressed. Great ideas as clearly as possible in an age where great ideas are simply being dismissed and being described in a muddle of of muddled prose and and we're drawn we're drawn to to Lewis not only for his clear explication his mastery of the language his clean prose but also for the joy that is emitted from that and that is also a direct legacy of Chesterton in fact Lewis says what first drew him to chesterton was chesterton's goodness christopher derrick wrote a tribute to lewis a few days after lewis died in 1963 and he talked of how lewis's genuine cheerfulness in spite of the deep in spite of his own deep skepticism about human nature and a belief in real evil was exactly like that of chesterton and he said lewis never claimed to be an original thinker he openly acknowledged his debt to chesterton and, uh, and, and I want to conclude by saying it's okay. It's okay that Lewis borrowed from Chesterton. Chesterton himself says of Shakespeare, in response to the critics who said that Shakespeare borrowed all his plots, Chesterton says, well, if Shakespeare borrowed, he jolly well paid back. <laughs>
2: move into the question and answer section of the evening, please. I don't want to keep you here forever. Some of us have got to go and eat, haven't we, gents? Yeah, so, that's true. Um, we'll get Peter into his hotel for the evening. Um, <laughs> over to you, really, opening this out to the floor. Any, any thoughts, any questions? Yes, sir, at the back there.
4: My name is William Griffiths, and uh, I wish to challenge Peter Williams. <laughs> Um, who made some adverse remarks concerning the centaurs and I would like to challenge them on behalf of the griffins now you uh, said that a centaur is half man and half horse you said this in a somewhat denigrating way um, and you compared this with our Lord Jesus Christ who is Truly God and truly man. None of us would disagree with that. But do not despise the centaur, because no less a Christian theologian and poet than Dante Alighieri himself chose as an image of an analogy a feeble earthly reflection of the dual nature of Christ, God, and man, he chose a griffin, which is both lion and eagle. And this passage comes in the Purgatorio, in the section dealing with the earthly paradise, when Dante beholds a great procession of saints And at the head of this procession, of course, is our Lord, represented by a griffin. And in this um, procession, Dante even has good words to speak about the much maligned medical profession, because he notices among the professions, St. Luke... Uh-huh. clad in the accoutrements mm. of a doctor. Mm. Mm. So, do not despise the Griffins or the centaurs,
3: <laughs> or even the
1: medical
3: profession. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, all right. well, William, I will rush to the defense of my esteemed opponent here. Not that I want to give him any help at all. But he was quoting Chesterton on that line but because he's saying that the centaur is not an adequate representation of the dual nature of Christ because Christ is not half man and half God. Like a centaur is half man, half horse. And this is not to denigrate that wonderful creature, the centaur. Who of us does not love centaurs? But it's to say that that simply is not an adequate representation of, of that, yes. And, and, and Dante, of course, Chesterton would say nothing but praise for Dante, but Dante could be wrong on this one, on using the Griffith as a as thing. Which reminds me of how Chesterton said of Dante, it's not always wrong to go down to the lowest promontory and look down on hell. It's when you look up at hell that a serious miscalculation. Duncan, <laughs> <laughs> it,
5: it, I, I realise that you're having fun, having a debate. but I mean, it doesn't seem to me that it matters very much. I mean, because if Lewis got all his ideas from Chesterton, he certainly put his own impress mm-hmm. on them, mm-hmm. and they both have a lot to give us today. We do need a new apologetic, but. Although you warn, one of you, anyway, I think it was you, warned, me, warned us all against being tied to the times we're living in, I wonder, you know, they both need a lot of processing, I think, to be useful today. Because since the Second Vatican Council, we've discovered something called dialogue. And these guys were both sort of good debaters, polemicists. They, they weren't really open to learning from the other. They were just concerned to knock them flat. Uh, and they found the witticisms to do so. And also, the other thing they don't take account of, you know, I mean, this argument about either either God or not a good man uh, seems to me to have been superseded by biblical scholarship. I think both of your heroes are innocent of any knowledge of historical biblical criticism, which is now the orthodoxy of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and I think that if you'd gone up to St. Peter when he said, at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, what do you, exactly do you mean? Do you mean that he's God? I think he would have turned around and said, uh, I think I need three or four centuries to think about that, uh, which is precisely what the church did. You know, I, I think there's a there's a very uh, simplistic approach to scripture in both of these apologists.
3: Well, thank you for those worthless comments. <laughs> <laughs> uh-
5: <laughs>
3: just, just act uh, biblical criticism was already well on its way uh, during Chesterton and Lewis's time, and they took on the biblical critics. They absolutely took them on, and, and uh, there's any number of references to to the the modern interpretations of scriptures, which uh, somehow try to empty empty Christ of his divinity in 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 the. Uh, in the Gospels, and uh, I, I think you you have some very good arguments in your hand, but to go back further in your wonderful wonderful uh, wrong headed comments um, Chesterton, Chesterton, with his opponents, always treats them with the greatest respect and does have dialogue with them, which is why he, as a debater, was adored by his opponents. Yes, there is an argument to be had, but Chesterton says. If you really want to talk with someone who believes differently than you do, you have to start by stating what it is you believe and finding out what he believes. And that's the dialogue. And so he says, you know, you, this thing you start with if you're talking to a Mormon or a Muslim is you find out what it is he does believe. And so, yes, he does begin with dialogue. And then he says, OK, now we've established what it is we both believe. Now let's try to figure out which one is true. And and uh, and Chesterton is a master at doing that, and I think C.S. Lewis does it somewhat all right as well. But I don't, I don't to say to to dismiss them as polemicists and not uh, masters of dialogue is really to misunderstand how good they were at
1: dealing with their opponents. I, I think just to add a few comments that, of course, both Chesterton and Lewis converted. And they, they had, in a sense, gone through the dialogue in their, in their own lives. They've lived through the, the dialectic of thinking about um, the arguments for and against. You know, Lewis had gone through a long process of going from atheism to some sort of pantheism to some sort of theism and then to Christianity. Um, and I think that's reflected in the way that he writes his uh, apologetic. And that's why people reading Lewis have often sort of said, uh, he, he gets me, he's going through what, what I'm going through. Um, and of course, carried on long, long dialogues if you read the letters of Lewis rather than thinking about Lewis, the, the debater at the, the Socratic Club, uh, and so on. Uh, in, in terms of biblical scholarship, I mean, Lewis took on the sort of Boltman and, and all that in um, his famous lecture on fern, fern seeds and elephants. Um, this whole sort of mythic uh, Jesus thing uh, says that the, the, these critics don't really understand the genre of myths that they're, they're trying to draw upon. And in terms of the. the the, the historical progress of the, of the quest for the historical Jesus, the so-called modern third quest for the historical Jesus, um, which has put Jesus uh, firmly rooted into a Jewish context rather than the sort of 19th century German critics drawing upon Greco-Roman thought to try and understand Christ, that, that the idea nowadays you understand Jesus against the Jewish background And I think you'll find that the third quest of the historical Jesus today is actually much more open to the kind of data that you need to establish about Jesus' self-image upon which the lunatic liar-lord argument then draws than biblical scholarship has been for a long time. Um, And you can find a defense of that uh, lunatic liar-lord argument uh, as one of the the five arguments for the divinity of Christ that I defend in my book, Understanding Jesus, Understanding Jesus' Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, um, that I published a few years ago, I don't know if you've got a copy there but uh, no, yeah um, so you can uh, get some info on the on the, the modern sort of historical criticism uh, movement and then how that gives you a, a, I think a, a secure platform for mounting that kind of trilemma argument today
4: uh, you, sorry
5: I'm just... please well, don't just,
1: let him carry on. He said,
3: "My comments are worthless, which
5: proves that he's of Chester
3: to me some of a primary Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, in fact, I'll 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 lay you down with one more witticism, because you said he just dismissed people with witticism. I'll I'll dismiss you with one more. Um, he, he says that uh, as far as textual criticism, he says the uh, the that Saint John never never faced any creature so strange in his apocalypse. As he, as the, as the textual critics who
2: attacked him. All right, thank you. That's a good one. Okay. I, I I'm sorry, I can't work out whether this gentleman is first or Lance. Was, Sir, Sir, to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Having um, changed tack fairly significantly,
0: both, um, if I understand correctly, have had a significant role for imagination, not in their
4: but in their literary corpus, also the ways in which their
0: literary works their apologetic works interact with each other. Um, First question is, do you see any people on the contemporary Christian horizon who are doing that kind of work or using imagination in that kind of creative and apologetic way? And secondly, how how can we do that well in order to communicate to the, the context in which we
1: find ourselves? Okay, I'll lead off on this one. <laughs> um, I, I would absolutely agree with you. It's something that, that the church needs to needs to work at doing. Um, who's doing it well today? Um, an American Catholic philosopher from Boston called Peter Kraft, or Peter Kraft, I'm never sure quite how to pronounce it. Kraft, he pronounces Kreeft. it
3: Kraft. He doesn't know how to pronounce his own name. Yeah. It's pronounced so Kraft. It's a tricky one.
1: Yeah. Um, Peter Kraft um, <laughs> writes some very imaginative. Apologetics, especially in in dialogue form. It's right reading reading a Platonic dialogue. Um, you could do the thing, and some people have you know, mounted things as, as plays. Um, so that's kind of uh, interesting uh, stuff. Um, but yeah, I think I, by by really immersing ourselves within the culture of the day, um, Lewis read so much and was influenced, of course, by, by by reading not only Chesterton but George MacDonald by reading the the, the Viking myths and, and all of this is it's coming out in, in the Narnia uh, stories, his friendship with with Tolkien and um, uh, reading The Hobbit and encouraging Tolkien in writing The Lord of the Rings and so on. Um, and so I think we need to immerse ourselves in the culture in a non-pietistic kind of a way, uh, not run away uh, from the arts but embrace uh, the arts and... Um, not worry too much about originality, that would come self-stifling as Lewis said, but, but to try and uh, express truth as one sees it through, uh, through the arts as one has imbibed it in, in your culture. To, to contextualise, uh, to enculturate uh, the message uh, in a way that, that Lewis and Chesterton were through the media of their day. Uh, and I think the church has, has a, a catching up job to do in terms of really doing that well with in terms of the media of, of our day in terms of of, of cinema uh, in terms of the internet uh, and the YouTube video and the Twitter channel and all of that I, I,
3: I think one writer who has uh, has mastered fantasy fiction to uh, explain Christian truths. Uh, in in a very captivating way for a large audience is someone who I think would surprise everyone. But she has said that she was very influenced by by Chesterton, and I I'm assuming she's familiar with with C.S. Lewis as well. But that's J.K. Rowling.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, but I'm just talking yeah, in terms yeah. of using of using the imagination to to explain Christian truths. Yeah
1: lunch.
0: Yeah, uh, I wanted to pick up on a uh, remark made by, by Peter there. He talked about the transcendent facts of truth and beauty. Um, I speak as a, an apostate, uh, an atheist. Uh, my Sunday school is Methodist, but I've done that when I was 13. Um, I'd like, can you explain for me what you, what you mean by transcendent beauty?
1: Yeah, sure, okay. Um... I right, can my ground. <laughs> so, um, the, the transcendental values, there's so a way of talking about value that goes back to the, the scholastic philosophers of the medieval era. And, and by transcendental, they mean uh, categories by which we judge things that transcend the distinctions between subjects at the university. So, they're, they're, they're categories by which we can judge all types of, of things. Um, so, we can ask questions of, of, of um, is it true? Uh, is it good? Is it beautiful? And we can ask those questions in all sorts of different subject areas. So they transcend the subject, but also transcendent in, in the sort of platonic, if you like, sense of, of transcending mere human opinion or or, or cultural agreement. Uh, such that you think that in these categories it's possible for you as an individual or you as a society to be wrong about something um, so that um, things are not just true for me or true for us but either true or false and that the same holds with questions of of goodness and of beauty that some things really are good or evil and that ethics is about Mm. discovering what is good and evil rather than inventing what is good and evil and that ascetics is about uh, coming to appreciate what really is worthy of praise worthy of appreciation in and of itself rather than simply depending upon our um, cultural agreement uh, uh, or our um, particular likes and dislikes that, that's what it means the whole argument as to whether, whether or not that's true or not and at least they'd be assuming objectivity in truth, if not in goodness and beauty. Uh, well, I, I think the place to refer you in terms of, of Lewis is, is his lectures on the abolition of man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, a privilege to, to hear from you Thank you very Thank much you. For uh, Thank
0: you. I wanted to return to the uh, theme of time. Of important elements that have taken place in our society and in our in the context of our religious life since they were both writing, that I think are helpful for us to reflect on as we, as we engage with these writers. Um, and one thing, of course, that has emerged uh, in, in the decades since they uh, were writing has been a, a growing skepticism towards institutional religion. That was starting to emerge, of course. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century mm-hmm. but it's gathered enormous momentum think, since, since their day uh, and I wonder what the relationship was I don't know mm-hmm. at all about this but between both Lewis and, Justin, and, and the church the institutional church and, and how they regarded that and do, they, do they have any sense sort of <coughs> to those people today who are um, engaged in a religious quest and who are earnestly seeking after some kind of religious meaning in their lives, mm. but who, for all sorts of reasons, uh, choose to keep
1: the institutional forms uh, mm. of the church and so length, or, or indeed maybe very hostile to, people who to such people. Mm. <sighs> yeah, yeah, sure. So, of course, in, in, in mere Christianity, Lewis famously puts this and I, I drew a notice to what Chesterton says in Orthodoxy about it as well. Puts forward, you need first of all to think about Christianity, to think about Christ and, and who he is and how you respond to him. Uh, but then says famously in, in the introduction to mere Christianity that you can't stop there. Because thinking about Jesus is, is like entering the hallway of the house of Christianity, but you can't live in the hallway of a house you actually need to move into one of the rooms, uh, by analogy, into one of the, the churches or denominations of Christianity, but that he's not going to be talking about that. Um, so in a sense, he, he, he rescinds from offering help on that. At, at a personal level, as soon as he became someone who believed in God, he started going to chapel at university, not because he was a Christian, and therefore, not certainly because he'd become a particular type of Christian, but because he thought he ought to nail his colours to the mast, in a sense, and actually do something practical about the fact that he'd now come to believe in a god. Um, so there's a, a recognition, I think, of, of religion reflecting one's relationship, both with non-believers and believers, and certainly through, through the Inklings, Lewis forms deep friendships with Christians across uh, the divides of Catholic, non-Catholic uh, and so on um, so that um, there's an emphasis there we can learn on, on fellowship um, and fellowship in, in what unites us um, that is uh, beyond a sort of idea of, of an individualistic religious relationship with God, I'll just go it alone the need for, for fellowship and relationship Uh, and the way that God's built us for relationship is reflected in that. Um, It's still a a, a further move to go on from a sort of um, um, informal fellowship to then think about formalised, institutionalised fellowships of Christianity. Um, And at that stage, I, I think sort of deliberately... At least in his public writings, Lewis and says, this, "This is not my job. This is not what I'm what I'm talking about. You can think about that once you've got into the hallway." Um, so I, I'm not sure he's going to have anything specific to say uh, uh, about the the outermost circle of that formalized, institutionalized um, religious relationships with other people.
3: Ch- Chesterton. Uh and Lewis, I, I have to say, are probably the, the two most important and most effective ecumenical writers of the 20th century. They appeal to Catholics and non-Catholics. Uh, there are Catholics who love C.S. Lewis. There are non-Catholics who love Chesterton. Chesterton himself is a convert to Catholicism. And you know, the one, the one argument in *The Everlasting Man* that um, that c s. Lewis does not embrace in his own apologetics is when Chesterton says that Christ founded a church he did not found a religion he did not found an ethical society he founded a church and it has all the the rules and the doctrines of, of a church and uh, and that is that's what started with the coming of Christ and and this is, you know, he he does say that even, even though he he is arguing at the very beginning of the book in the introduction, he's not laying out necessarily a Catholic apologetic because he is after his conversion and he calls his conversion the chief event of his life. He he says that in the introduction, but but in that at that point in in the book, he says that that is the thing that sets uh, uh, really. Uh, the Catholic Church apart from the other things that have that have come along and and um, you know he, he is he is defending a, a particular doctrine and and Lewis you know when he's trying to cr- state what mere Christianity is he's trying to say these are the these are the Christian doctrines that all Christians hold in, in common and um, but but the, the question you have to ask yourself uh, is is would C.S. Lewis accept the Church of England as it's situated today, and and you know Walter Walter Hooper who I talked to yesterday says he would not. Mm-hmm. He, he just there's, there's too many things that have that the Church of England has has dropped from what Christians hold in common that that would make it something less than mere Christianity. And and so um, it's so it's an institution that actually, you know, Chesterton would argue it's an institution that protects those things, and that's why he says in Orthodoxy that the doctrines and the dogmas of the church they may be walls, and but they're the walls of a playground, and we are only free with, within within those those walls. And um, um, I think that's the uh, th- that's the interesting thing that, that Ch- Chesterton does define, he does defend the institute the institution of the church. But, I, but there's the really interesting thing about the, the unity of all Christians, which is something that comes out in both Chesterton's and Lewis's writings. And, and the fact that it does, these two writers do bring together uh, Catholics and non-Catholics, I think is, both, is best summed up in, in what Chesterton writes about George MacDonald, a writer to whom both Chesterton and Lewis owe a debt. And he calls, he says, as, as John Calvin and Martin Luther are known as morning stars of the Reformation, he sees George MacDonald as a morning star of the Reunion. And I think that Chesterton and C.S.
2: Lewis are morning stars of the Reunion. Ooh, very good. Can I, I? We could be here all night with lots of questions. Can I just? We've got a little presentation we need to make now. But I just, just, just to follow on the two two speakers there. Um, Father Joe Fessio from 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 Ignatius Press um, at a talk once. He talked about how you know both Catholics and various Reformed traditions. Quote Chesterton and Lewis together. G.K. Chesterton said this. C.S. Lewis said that. <laughs> And Joe Fessio said, I, I sometimes think it would be great if all the denominations issued a, a joint statement of agreement, saying that what unites us all, despite our serious differences which we need to discuss, is scripture, the first six ecumenical councils, and the collected words of C.S. Lewis and John." <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> we, 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 we've run out of
2: time, I think, now. Um, I, I, what I want to do now is hand you over to the hmm. director of the Aquinas Institute for Education Research, Dr Anthony Towie,